welcome to Journey to the Centre of Food, a voyage of discovery for curious foodies everywhere. My name's Jay Taylor, I'll be your pilot today, along with our foodie navigator, James Winter. Hi! And on today's show, we are going to be opening the fridges and pantries of the royal family to discover what the queens, princes and princesses of Britain love to eat. Plus, we're going to be taking a trip to explore the most expensive restaurant in the world and discover just what you get for £2,000 per person. So grab your tiaras, ball gowns and bling as we take a journey to the centre of royal food. Hello James, are you wearing your tiara sir? Always. You know that. <laughs> yeah, you've got a tiara on Whenever the Whenever at home. I always like to don my tiara. Absolutely. Well, this is a, it's a very special week. This is going out, isn't it? It's, it's Jubilee week. Absolutely. Is, I mean, curtsying. we're going to be quite sick to death of stories about the royal family <laughs> by the end of this well, I'm podcast. Due to head to Sco- I'm due to head to Scotland during the, uh, during the celebrations, so I'm not sure. Well, I, th- <laughs> I believe she's still the Queen of Scotland. No, I, I know, been some kind but I'm of not thing. sure which way my family leans on the whole, whether we should have royals or not. So I might get uh, roundly stoned if I stand up and start That's all that you'll, you'll walk in on some awkward uh, Guy Fawkes type plot. <laughs> That'd be great, wouldn't it? I'm there with go, oh, God save the Queen. They're like, no. All right, fair enough. Yeah. Um, I was watching yes, no, something the other day. Just, uh, just, you just struck me. I, feel, in, I believe, I think, in... in in the Ashmolean Museum, I went to an event. This is a little bit of personal journey recently. Went to a little event at the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford, which for those who can get to it, who are listening, it is one of the great, I think, museums in Britain. I don't know. It's just run by really, really curious, interesting people. And every so often they do a fantastically big exhibition. Sometimes it's just a, yeah, the permanent collection, which is interesting in itself. Um, and, and what they do have, actually, in the permanent collection, I assume it's on permanent display, is the lamp that Guy Fawkes was found holding when he was arrested no his he's actual not, though, lamp is not it's like no that's like the truth well, like, no, hold on no stuff. this is the ashmole museum this isn't roll up roll up here's your fair rocked up in your local village green i've got some come and look at scotland's largest living man bearded lady this is the Ashmolean museum how do they know that they didn't have fingerprints back then i mean it's, well, i imagine it's been documented for you know, several hundred years but this is it and being put aside as an item of interest that is crazy though isn't it it's probably it should come with a speech bubble that just goes oh bugger. well you just <laughs> it connects you with that man I mean, imagine yeah well yes that's it isn't it but <laughs> for sudden gut dropping feeling of realizing he's being rumbled as well, he stood next to barrels of, of well yes absolutely but you know that stood next to barrels and barrels of gunpowder you know Anyway, it was just very evocative. It made me think of that as we we're talking about. Obviously, he wasn't. Although he was trying to blow up the House of Parliament at the state opening of Parliament, wasn't he? So he was trying to blow up the king as well. King, yeah, who, yeah. Would have, who would have been king? Was it King James the First of England, Sixth of Scotland? That's the one, isn't it? I'm going to say yes and nod sagely. Okay. I think Googling. so. I think it's a James. It was a James who was there's many James kings in Scotland, but he was the first one in England. Well, obviously, I, being a I, James, I, I've always been drawn to that fact. Well, <laughs> I didn't. I mean, I, I've started to... Um, James I of England, by the way. Yeah. That was uh, who he tried to get. Well done. Ten, ten royal points. Um, uh, someone I uh, play sport with, she used to work at Buckingham Palace. And uh, I was chatting away with her, sort of picking her brains about all sorts of things. And she said, oh, you really should watch The Crown. And I know I work on TV, but I haven't watched it. Mm. Um, and she said, it's it's really, really good on your royal history. And she said, obviously, it's not filmed in Buckingham Palace, but the, it's 
from her testimony quite similar in its look Ooh. and she said it's just a really interesting insight into that sort of world and history and I said I've only watched about four episodes now but I tell you what it's already started to sort of enhance and change my perspective on the whole thing and just what a just what a life it is and how this several you know being sort of life of servitude the way it's put on people is it's quite remarkable it really genuinely mm. I mean obviously I know it's fictional a lot of it and all mm. made up but still it is plus also there's a great deal of googling going on in our house going who's that um, who, well it doesn't go back as far as James the first does it <laughs> no but no but even a couple of generations you're like is that the queen mum or is that the queen's mum uh, yes and you're like, oh who is that king <laughs> is terrible. it about is it does it I mean obviously our listeners have probably watched the entire 17 series of the crown so just thinking <laughs> you idiots but is it about Queen Elizabeth then is that where yeah, it begins yeah so it starts with her succession to the throne oh, gotcha so basically um, yeah it, it, it's who was, who, was, who was it who was her father who was king King George yeah King George king? so the king's speech King George yeah so uh, he yeah. he passes and she becomes queen whilst on somewhere in the mid it's on holiday isn't she she's that's still, right she's yeah. taking the Commonwealth tour so she's in Africa when, when he when he dies yes um, it, although she honeymooned at that very famous place in, in Tanzania I think but where, I don't know where she was when because there's a very famous, um, what do you call it, a watering hole resort in the middle of the Tanzania National Park. See, now that's in this as part of their royal tour. But oh, maybe that I was thought, it was. No, but I thought it was during their honeymoon. Maybe so that's what back. I mean. I think there's a lot of... I think maybe it was interrupted. Actually, I've got a feeling, yes, that she might have gone back there to have a honeymoon because the trip there before was interrupted because she flew back, didn't she? Yeah. To, um, They'll mess with the facts, though, a lot, I'm sure. it's. Um, but, yeah, there's quite a long journey ahead in it because you realise, well, that's partly... You know, obviously, we've, we've had a stern reprimand from the palace over our, our, our frankly, sort of anti-royal uh, trifle talk the other day. Mm. That's what... The, uh, this is why we're frantically trying to get back in the good books Are of we? Um, right. Kensington Palace. Yeah, I'm I wondering, so. if there, is there much food in the bits of a crown that you've seen? Do they, is there evidence of food and eating, or is it just a prop? Uh, not not specifically this this yeah. tea which always looks a little bit insipid the way they, where they have it they had some nice things while they were uh, abroad but it did put me of mind you know obviously we you know through the, through the, as Heston said many times you know the fat duck they've catered for royal parties oh, over yeah. the years and it's just yeah, that, you know everyone they, takes they joy eat in well food. well I mean you know when we get to swapping anecdotes I have I have been inside Clarence House which is the Prince of Wales's home Prince Charles currently um, where we did a function which we filmed for Saturday Kitchen and James. Um, cooked a meal there so I, it was interesting with little insights you got into the, the, the certainly the palates of the royal family it was uh yeah it was oh, interesting. that's a very good segue because that's exactly what we're going to look at now now this is this is extensively uh researched uh, through google so do our listeners especially some of the historians we spend time with please don't wrap me over the knuckles too hard with a rolled up newspaper but there is there are there are some you know there are some sort of um apparently these are from the correct Sources, but who knows? I mean, honestly. But we'll whip we'll, we'll through some of the preferences that apparently like. So we'll start with the Queen herself, or bless the Queen. Uh, she prefers dark chocolate, um, which is what? one of her form, what, what, one of her form of chefs has said. <laughs> yes, to fish. She prefers dark chocolate to basically anything. The darker the chocolate, the better, which is just a pointless mm. phrase that is. But yeah, the Queen likes dark chocolate. Right. And actually, I, we do know for a fact she watched. One of our shows, uh, one of the shows that Heston and I made together, we found out that she watched it. And that was a very, very odd feeling to realise mm. that she'd be sitting there with Philip, maybe in bed. Absolutely, no, I agree. Watching one yeah. of our shows. I mean, well, they, really? I had the same feeling with Saturday Kitchen. You know, Prince of Wales used to text James. What, really? <laughs> Once or twice. Oh, that's oh, awesome. Not, and don't, not during the show necessarily, but sort of afterwards when he'd be talking about beef normally. I mean, it'd be normally related to some kind of British livestock 
area. And what would he text of, him? Well, just kind of, you know, we you ought to do more. You know, not like, well, <laughs> didn't look, didn't look cooked enough for me. You know, no, no. I I, so James, yeah, James Martin's quite close to them, is he? They know him. Well, as a f- I mean, look, I'm speaking out of turn. I don't know his relationship with them, but I do know that he is is a passionate supporter of the farming community, certainly of the northern parts of England. James, um, and has done many things uh, for various sort of beef and lamb livestock supporting groups. The Prince of Wales is a big supporter of that, and always looking for ways to you know to undergo public engagement with those causes so james has yeah a few times i believe i mean obviously he's going to you know his, his agent stroke lawyer will be on the phone immediately saying stop talking about this <laughs> and we're, but, just, um, we're never going to get our knighthood this well, way well, well prince no. charles prince charles apparently eats a, a strictly organic diet which is not you know not really front page news anymore is it but um he's very fussy about his leg his, his legs his eggs Ooh. um it is, uh, Jeremy Paxman wrote about this apparently, uh, particularly his boiled eggs. His staff would prepare up to sever them and, seven of them in the hope that one would be runny enough. Um, Ooh, he likes them really runny, does he? It was never anything other than the four-minute egg, which is which is a, min- a whole minute less than I do mine for. So yeah, especially if it's straight out of the fridge. That's going to be almost liquid. Well, I know not to keep them in the fridge now after the eggs episode we did back in the day. Mine are all Absolutely, kept on the side yeah. now. But I, uh, yeah, four minutes is going to be almost that so runny. You think, oh, is this is this all right? Should I be? Now that's a proper royal thing as well. That feels like decadence. Having seven of seven eggs and going, I'm going to try all of these. Whichever one I want, that's the one I'm going to eat yeah. every morning. That's what I, that's proper prince like. Hopefully, he doesn't do that anymore. That would be quite cool. He was it? quite fussy when we did this event with him. We did a, again, for, you know, James was invited to cook a meal for, it was a whole load of prestigious chefs um, that had flown out. I can't remember what the focus of the event was. There been lots of people from trade sectors and all sorts and chefs from around the world and stuff. And James did the, the menu. And we did, it. there was a moment where Prince Charles um, came down to the, the, the kitchens in, in Clarence's house where we were sort of filming and working and stuff down there with James making the recipes and everything and obviously it was a huge kerfuffle and before he arrived we knew he was coming because like 40,000 people appeared and stood at the door <laughs> you know, to go oh is he coming is he yes in a minute and in he Barely came noticed. surrounded by 40 people at all times and tried everything and, and talked about horseradish and stuff but he was he was very keen to you know to, to make it known you know in a, in a, in a polite way but he, he liked his beef well done <laughs> you are going to cook with uh, well done are you how, how, first of all you are so how would you cook this and James like, oh yeah medium medium medium, medium well was Charles <laughs> well medium well perhaps <laughs> yes absolutely uh, we just well yeah. <laughs> well I think the um, this is an example of how these stories become fact so this one is the Queen loves Kate's homemade chutney now, do you mean the, story- the Duchess of, of, of Cambridge Yes, yeah, yes. I'm not on first name terms with no, her. Yeah. Uh, although my child did get hugged by her child once upon a time oh when they were God. little. We bumped into them at a petting zoo without realising. Oh, okay. You only, know, you only knew when you sort of, sort of slightly, who's that guy over there? And it was like, it's quite a, a guy standing in the corner with so like, his good, hand good. in his pocket. Ooh, interesting. Yeah, because yeah, I've, got, I've, got I've got a couple of brushes with unexpected brushes of Royal Family, which I'll share with you. Yeah. Oh, go on then. Mm. Oh, what now? Well, um, do, no, I'll tell you the chutney Yeah, finish first. your chutney story. Yeah. So, uh, it's, this is, um, so this is when the Duchess of Cambridge first went to Christmas at Sandringham. So you're trying to impress the, the granny, this, she's trying to impress the Queen, and she didn't know what to gate, give her, so she made her granny's recipe of chutney uh, mm. and gave it to the Queen, who apparently liked oh. it. Now, I think that's probably one of those ones where you're like, oh, lovely, this is delightful, and you just go, no, put that away. But mm. still, I mean, it's a, it's a nicely thoughtful thing, and it's one of those things, what do you give 
what gift do you give someone who's got everything? Yeah. Make it, make it yourself, isn't it? Although I don't think my brownies are going down quite as well with her. Um, mm. And apparently Kate and Will love a curry, which I think has gone up. Uh, well, yes. Yeah. Well, the thing I've always thought is that certainly Charles was very clear that he didn't want things like onions, garlic, didn't want any of that stuff, right? Because a lot oh. of their world is talking and, and, and discussing things. So they were very keen to have very bland, I suppose, neutral oh, flavours on the, on, on the plate. So there was no repeating, you know, there was no awkward burp the next day, you know, filling an important meeting with the, I don't know, the Prince of... Malawi or wherever was coming over um, you know so I think that's that's a pretty standard kind of working policy as far as I'm aware for the royals they too try and avoid so I'm surprised well I suppose I'm not surprised that Harry and William do their own thing but um, well, he doesn't like spicy though so that makes uh, that makes because also you imagine I mean I think the levels of boredom which they must have to tolerate must be incredible because I could just think of any time I sort of go to any sort of speech of any you know even a school assembly my brain just immediately shuts off and I just start staring out the window and that's their entire life on a loop is just sort of sitting there being given sort of very random boring gifts with sort of probably very random boring people who and then seeing them is the biggest moment in their lives but for them it's like oh god what are we doing now so the idea if you've got a bit of you know curry belly as well that probably wouldn't help the day pass so I understand why a sort of cheese sandwich mm. would be a, an easier way of an easier way of doing it uh, I mean I don't know what these things are these, these are ridiculous um, things Prince George enjoys high-end school dinners um, yeah but he goes to <laughs> high-end school. school for goodness sake he goes sake. to high-end school oh they serve salmon wellington and chickpea and ap- apricot tagine I say it's better than uh, most my, my schools I went to That's, uh, but yeah but then again he's a prince of England, prince of Britain for crying out loud he should be having decent food and the idea well, also, <laughs> somebody's paying top dollar for his education so you know you'd think the food would be up to scratch you'd hope wouldn't you uh, go on then what's your brush with royals well then? I used to when I first started my very first probably in my very, one of my very first jobs ever was working in a, as a radio researcher um, on a Radio 2 programme um and we were, it was an independent one, so not based at the BBC, and we had an office uh, in in Camden, between sort of Chalk Farm and, and Camden, so very kind of scruffy neck of the woods, right? You know, cool, but scruffy. And we were in, like, the second floor. We had, a, it was an old recording studio, so it was a studio, and bands would come in, cool bands would, uh, we'd work in this little office. But there were two other units, and it had one of those, just to set you, it had one of those kind of doors that you only get in those kind of old converted, it must have been a stable or a part of a brewery or something, because it had a kind of wooden door within a barn door type entrance. Oh, and great. inside the ground floor was this one of those gated lifts, which would then pit the button and it, it would grind up, you know, if, otherwise you'd walk up the stairs, right? Yeah. Uh, and I can't remember who was on the ground floor, but we were on the second floor. And on the third floor was a photography studio run by a, a photographer called John Swanell. Now, John Swanell I'd never heard of until I'd worked here, but obviously he's one of those kind of like David Bailey. You know, he's like a really famous photographer who does very, you know, strong cool it has a certain black and white portraiture style to him so lots of famous people and, and people would have their photos taken anyway always something unusual would be happening sometimes you'd walk in and there'd be like a girl in a bikini on a bale of straw in the in the entrance because john would be doing a photography something, <laughs> I don't know, something old, I don't know, whatever and so there's always unusual things going on i remember one day coming up the stairs having gone out and got a, whatever a sandwich um, or something going up the stairs to, and there was some scuffling and running down the stairs. I was almost knocked aside by two immensely smart tweed wearing boys, right? And I thought, oh, well, you look terribly smart. Um, didn't think too much of it, but you know, you have that kind of click. And then obviously, rushing down after them, suddenly stood in front of me was Princess Diana <laughs> it's oh, on the stairwell. Wow. Just okay. stood there. And obviously, we locked eyes because I just thought, you, you know, I just thought, of course, Princess Diana. 
you know, the last person in the world I would expect to have been. You think, God, of course, that was William and Harry bundling up. And she was chasing after because they'd just finished sitting in a boring old photo studio for hours now, as a parent, you understand. <laughs> and they'd gone, Mum, let's get out of here. They'd legged it down the stairs. And she'd gone bustling past them. And now when you when you Google John Swanell pictures, William and Harry, you'll see the photo shoot, which is that really... It's one of the iconic ones of that kind of them just laughing and playing with her in black and white. She's looking really relaxed, like a mum, very really young and fresh face. And it was just the most extraordinary. No one would believe me in the office for a bit. You know, it's kind of what? You know, what did of, you say? Did you say anything? No, I literally, I think my jaw just went. You curtsied and went, mum. <laughs> I don't even think I managed to hi or anything. You know, just so awkward. It was like, oh my God. You know, I'd, I just wear, I'd wear it and try a bow or like some kind of like bow headbutt thing by accident like oh uh, well I wasn't that compass it was so fast and you just think that's Princess Diana on a grotty stairwell corridor you know just not even like you know I wasn't walking past anywhere glamorous wasn't in Mayfair or any of these places where you might occasionally see somebody you know it was just literally at my grotty stairwell of my old office you know it was an extraordinary moment for me and obviously it stuck with me that image you know of them you know just seeing them and then you know in some way connected I don't know but it was very unexpected and uh, all I could say she looked lovely and the kids were just just perfect group perfectly groomed kids I mean the most that's what struck me about them they were absolutely you know spick and span spotless not hair out of place that's what you know. you'd hope, wouldn't you? I mean, you would be really smeared with dirt like our children are all the time. This is this is. Uh, okay, well, so listen, that's lovely. By the way, we will finish with a couple of quick ones of these. Uh, mm, go on. Prince William likes Nando's. I mean, who doesn't? Really? Yeah, I mean, who exactly. Doesn't? Uh, and these are probably very apocryphal things. Can you imagine but... the Just Eat guy rocking up there? <laughs> I love the idea they're like a golden moped, and they just like that would be so cool, wouldn't it? If they called just eating, well, he some can't guys drop in. Can he? He's not going to queue up at the Beckersfield services like me and my family, is he? <laughs> and finally, um, I mean, these are all like the Queen loves, mm. but the Queen loves steak with Marmite marinade. Mm. A Gaelic steak is one of the Queen's favourite meals. Uh, according to uh, Darren McGrady, McGrady uh, the recipe c- consists of beef or venison fillet in, in a whiskey and mushroom cream sauce, and the magic ingredient is a quarter teaspoon of marmite. I mean, who who knows if that's true? But it sounds jolly nice. So I can imagine her like. I imagine that. marmite will be very pleased to hear that. Oh yeah, yeah, probably will. They'll they'll um they won't sponsor us. Either. They must already know it. If we if we if we if we're, if we're discovering it, they must have discovered it by now. Exactly. I wonder who put that story out there. Um, <laughs> oh, hey, talking about sponsors. Look at this. This is seamless, James. You have to understand mm-hmm. how the good these segues are. Um, listen up out there. Uh, free booze time, which we know is the one thing gets you all to pay attention. Well, we need that. Uh, how, how would you like? to try a case of exceptional wine for free. Uh, of course you would. Well, uh, our sponsors are here to help. All you have to do is go to wwwwine 52 the numbers 52com forward slash journey, cover the postage, and you'll receive three carefully selected wines from Italy. Wine 52 is a wine discovery club that visits different wine regions every month, and there are wine experts handpick three from the best mm. independent wineries in the region to send to their members. And yes, James, I have had mine delivered, and yes, I have smashed half a bottle of red already and it's very very nice and mm. um yeah it's fantastic and it's quite exciting because i would i've never seen these before i did have one though i really liked and i th- it comes with a magazine which tells you what it is and i accidentally threw the magazine away and then couldn't track the wine down because i remember what it looked like but it had no i was just run- wandering around in like waitrose and sainsbury's going have you got the uh, the one with the funny looking purple thing on the front um mm. which wasn't massively smart i should go on the website but it is really good because of that because you can customize your case uh from white red or a mixture of styles 
as I said, you get the magazine Glug, which delves into the wine, the winemakers, plus you get two tasty snacks along with it. Uh, and after your free case, you're going to be part of the monthly wine club. But there is no commitment. Uh, you can try it, see what you like. If it's not for you, pause or cancel any time. So why don't you have a, a glass of three or, th- or three bottles of wine on us to toast the Queen, the Queen. Uh, all you have to do is go to www.wine52.com forward slash journey and claim your free case today. Good. Uh, I think that's. I mean, we're, we're all about encouraging curiosity in food here, and uh, you know, and and we've said this many times, but sometimes wine can be a really baffling place, and you end up buying the same two or three types of wine forever. Some people will only drink Frascati from Tesco you know, just because they like it, and that's it. That's enough. But actually, there's a there's a universe of wine out there being made by really skilled, passionate farmers and winemakers. You know, which anybody who can introduce you to something new that you've never tried before is a good idea in my book. And do go back and listen to our wine podcast, by the way. We had some really interesting ones mm. with, uh, yeah, Ollie people Smith, some Peter, Peter and, and Susie, obviously, you know, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I, I don't know who's putting the wine together for Wine 52, but I'm sure they're equally passionate and knowledgeable uh, behind the scenes and choosing, you know, wines that they believe are going to be interesting for you, you know, um, from places that you may not normally buy your wine from, which is, is often a way to get really good value. Now, after having talked about the royals, we're going to go even more fancy now. Uh, I've been rummaging around, and uh, because I, because I like a headline, I've bumped into the most expensive restaurant in the world, which is, you know, these things are always levelled at uh, various different things. Now, I'm not really interested in the most expensive dishes in the world, because they're always some guy Gold-covered burger with... Yeah, you know, it's ridiculous. Yes, exactly. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, it's just ludicrous. Uh, but I was interested in... In this, and I thought we could uh, have a little rummage through the menu of Sublimotion, which is in uh, Ibiza, mm. in Spain, mm. and is a really interesting thing. Uh, the headline is the the tasting menu, which is 15 courses, costs uh, around £2,500 per person. So, uh, yeah, it's not Nando's. Um, mm. But because, you know, I've spent... A large chunk of my career in the multi-sensory dining world with Heston. You obviously work as part of the Fat Duck Group, so you are up to your eyes in in the whole world of multi-sensory dining and uh, you know dining on the mm. edges of of what we love and and, and what mm-hmm. we're doing in terms of our senses. So I thought it'd be interesting for us to, to 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 step through this and see what we think to it. So the first thing that strikes you when you see the images of it is this this whole di- dining table. It's for twelve people at a go, and it's based within a, a box around the dining table but the box it's walled in with these huge uh led screen i don't know if they're led or projection mapping screens but massive screens which constantly change throughout the meal uh and also you get uh actors coming in and interactive stuff and the table itself uh is projected onto with various different images which which change it and and you and i have both encountered this in in other ways and other guises haven't we in different places mm. so yeah it's 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 it, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I've, I confess I've not been to Sublimotion, so we have to, you know, put that out there. But I, I don't know if you've been, Jay, but I've not been. So we're talking no. about this based on, on reviews and content and PR and all sorts of stuff. And, and yes, as Jay says, we both explored all the various technical possibilities around food and dining I'm sure you know that are out there and and there are a number of concepts a bit similar some very similar uh, certain uh, legal uh, (laughs) voices will say um, in Shanghai um, to sublimation but um, you know which we won't won't discuss but anyway it doesn't matter you can find it online but really it's about for me we the way we work we talk about a concept with lots of difficulties multi-sensory obviously and immersion into the experience but really when you bring something in 
you know, you were saying this before we started about being sympathetic to the to the concept. That's that's something that you're very aware of. And we 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 have this term at work called purposeful theatre. You know, but theatre has great. a place in the dining room. Of course, it does. It's part of the fun of why you go out. Tableside service, flambés, and whatever the carving. It's all part of going out to eat at some of the great restaurants if you have room and staff to deliver it. But it should have a purpose. So I'm always trying to think what is. What is the reason for this bit of theatre here? How does it get me closer to the experience the chef is trying to give me? You know, if it's just purely because I've got too much money and I've just bought a great big projector and I can make stars move around the dining room, then then I'm less excited unless it connects to the experience you're having at the table. So that's where I'm curious. And I would love to go, obviously, you know. I'd love to try it. I Perhaps one sounds... day one of our sponsors will treat us to a to a meal there, but you know we'll have well, to wait. At the current and see. rate, we need a few more adverts before we get close to one ticket. So maybe we could just share one. I I, I had to go a projection mapping dining mm. experience in North London, which was really interesting, and um, it was really fun. And obviously there were echoes within it of of things I've experienced with Heston at the Fact Up because he does have a huge shadow across this world and inspires and lots of people as they do very well in the chef world sort of cite him as inspiration. But I, I, one of the things that struck me when I was having the projection mapping experience was that the theatre and the show of the projection mapping is the thing I remember. The dishes, I don't. And this is curious because I think of all my experiences lucky enough to eat many times in the Fat Duck over the years, both filming and just trying things out. Um, the food is always the star and anything that's around it is all pointing in the direction towards the food. And I don't think there's anything wrong with, you know, a massive theatre around it. I think the idea of theatre in which food is a part of it is fantastic and really mm. exciting. It's something we've toyed with. Obviously, we've done that on the TV, but we've also toyed with the ideas of it in many different ways. But you sort of come back to that fact that how do these things aid the food? Well, actually, let's, let's take a little step through this. Now, as James said, this is all apocryphal we, we're, we're, we're not this is not from us we haven't been there but i think it'll still be good to, to, to step through it so you, you get whisked there in a fleet of land rovers which i think is quite cool very mm-hmm. sort of uh, james bondy you're given a a, a, um, a ticket when you get in which are edible which is very nice but you, you have to hold on to it and there's sort of you go in an elevator and everything is 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 very impressive when you walk into the room because I mean, the images of this 3D projection is fantastic. I mean, at one point, I'm looking at an image where it's projected like you're inside a garden and a forest, and the whole table itself then becomes the garden and the forest, um, which is which is remarkable, actually. Um, they uh, There's an explosive mouthful of nitro-frozen olive oil to start off with, which is interesting, isn't it? Obviously, we've had the nitro-poached mm. uh, eggs many times, but olive oil, that's quite curious. And then there's mm. caviar and oysters with champagne, uh, then there's sharks obviously swimming around you on the screen, yep. which is quite cool. Um, deconstructed shrimp scampi, uh, which you eat while riding on the Orient Express. And I've seen this, it's very cool, because the chairs are turned sideways, and then basically you have the sort of carriage windows next to you, and the world goes past next oh, to you. A bit like the Hogwarts train at Universal. Yes, a bit That's like that, actually. To, yes. Is that what happens? I haven't been kind like of, that. yeah. Yeah, there's a yeah, there's a kind of train that you sit on. It's it's it, it's like an old carriage and, and literally things whiz past you on screens, but you're also moving, but you're on a monorail, but they don't want you to see that. They want you to think you're on the Hogwarts Express. Interestingly, they seem to have, because um, we've all toyed around with the VR thing quite a lot. I know Heston's played with it a lot, but they've done something where you put your VR goggles on and you, you drink 
peach martinis and search for magic mushroom soups in the garden of waterfalls while in a VR experience. And that's quite interesting because by using the glass, you've got an anchor point so you can put it up to your gob without obviously having to see it. Because mm. one of the issues I felt when I was, I mean, I love VR and I do it a lot, but you, unless you can actually see the thing in the world you're in. Mm, you're a bit lost, don't you? And you, can't, quite you can't see your hands either. I mean, we, we've done many development things and it was uh, around VR and, and there was a wonderful company called Marshmallow Laser Feast. Great name, you're not going to forget that. Who, who worked very extensively in the world of, of VR and they're very, very creative in, in what they do and they try to, it's a bit more immersive and we, you know, we, 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 Work with you know did some development exploration with them uh, a while ago, but sort of trying to. I mean, you can add sensory things to your eating experience. We know that you can add sound, you can add touch, you can add smell, but as soon as you interfere with sight, I think it's it becomes quite complicated. You know, if you can't see what you're eating, or you or you transform the food you're eating, which is what these guys, you know, uh, marshmallow eggs are able to do, you could kind of you'd suddenly be holding a rock, you know, which you would then be able to deform with your hands, and obviously as you eat it, it would change and it might become something else. But for what purpose is what I'm reaching around for? I'm trying to work out what, apart from just the fun of of playing around in VR, the eating part just seems a bit irrelevant. You know, so it's kind of, you know, that's that's the bit I have always struggled with. When when you put the goggles on and you walk into whatever world they create for you in there, which will be brilliant now, and the, the, the graphics and capabilities are amazing, but you're getting away from the food, right? As you said, the food should be the star, and obviously you can't see it with your own eyes. Hey, what's that sound I hear you say? Well, that's the sound of one of our new sponsors and the sound of a great solution to your retail needs. It's the sound of Shopify. Shopify is an all-in-one commerce platform to start, run and grow your business. As we know, through lockdown, everyone seems to have started a side hustle or become their own boss. But there's always a bit of an impasse to trying to get yourself your products actually out there. Well, the great thing is Shopify is here to help. It's an all-in-one commerce platform that can start, run, and grow your own business. It makes it simple for anyone to sell from anywhere. From creating your online shop in your look to finding new customers and scaling your burning idea. With Shopify, you can do it all in one place with no need for skills and design or coding because, frankly, none of us really know what coding is. Uh, it's how every minute of the day a new seller makes loads of sales on Shopify. Sellers such as Gymshark, Yule, Lounge, Pizza Pilgrims, they're all using it. So why not you? It's your turn to start selling today with Shopify for free and getting your products out there to everybody. They have 24-7 support and they're ready to help you every step of the way. The great news is you can sign up for free now to a 14-day trial at shopify.co.uk slash food journey all you have to do is go to shopify.co.uk slash food journey right now to start growing your business shopify.co.uk slash food journey and get selling right back to the show well it's interesting when you take senses away because later on in this one they uh they have a little circus. So they bring out a little mini Ferris wheel, lots of mm. treats. There's balloons with sam- mini sandwiches, et cetera, et cetera. And what they're tapping into there is obviously collective nostalgia. And as we mm. know, you know, 
certainly in the TV making world, but also in the food world, tapping into nostalgia is incredibly powerful. And it's a well that you can go to over and over again because it, it does release all sorts of wonderful chemicals in our minds. It makes us uh, very relaxed. I was reading a brilliant study about it the other day where people used to think that nostalgia made you melancholy in a bad mm, way. But actually right, it's yeah. the opposite. It's actually incredibly constructive uh, for helping people. And they've done lots of studies. Mm. There was that famous experiment where they took people in their 70s and, and put them back into uh, a... 19 yeah 1950s house. 50s house yes yeah and they came out of themselves by, didn't they, they, yeah, they it was did, absolutely Spain, it was in spain again i think I mean, that was a spanish experiment and they couldn't they couldn't see any mirrors so they dressed and there was pictures and posters of them back in the day and uh it transformed their mind and and the thing about nostalgia is you don't need tons of specific cues for it uh as as you you know heston obviously does fantastically with sounds of the sea that's just sound and the sound means anybody can access their memories through it because it's it, it's it's an immediately malleable thing in your mind. Your memories can be brought forth. If you put pictures up there, immediate pictures, you're not accessing your memories. And I think it's a really mm. delicate line between managing to use your mind in a way that allows you to to be joyous and have fun in it um, mm. to get to those things. Because I think that all of these things the whole point of them is to give you a deeper experience right it's to give you an adventure of the senses and yes you can get that on the outside you know things barraging you but as soon as something hooks you in your mind as soon as something becomes a a reminiscence or a nostalgic thing or even sends you down one of those beautiful little hypnotic thought paths where you just go off and get lost in daydreams that's really deep and that stays with you far Mm. deeper than just the sort of external experience and Mm. i think that you know and i'm sure this i'm sure this does it as well i mean it does sound quite remarkable in what they're doing but i think this for me when i read it sounds like a kind of circus of food i mean like a barrage of the senses uh in a most remarkable way i don't know if i'm i mean i'd love to try it but i'm not gonna be paying two and a half grand for it i mean that's incredibly expensive um but and also quite remarkable i'm quite surprised people will pay that for this kind of thing well i mean that's that's i mean i i would have i would have been just as surprised as you had i not been working at one of the world's biggest restaurant finest restaurants for six years there's a, there's another level there's many levels you know in the society there are some people that just uh, do swim in, in a different ocean to us and so the money is not the point. Often, the more expensive it is, the more they want it because it means that only the top levels of their world can get to it too who would spend it. So there's, a, there's an exclusivity about the price which isn't reflective of the cost of delivering the, the product. It's really about who you're aiming at. And there is a world of luxury which wouldn't balk at that price. So in fact, I don't think it's that expensive. You, what do you say, $2,000? $3,000, about $2,000. You think, you think if you went out for, if the two of us went out to celebrate you know, the 150th episode of the podcast, even at like the Gavroche, right? <laughs> you know, and one of us decided to, to open the wine list and, and squeeze down, you know, we could easily spend that. Yeah, and I, I, you're right, actually. I'm thinking about, you know, obviously the fat duck isn't exactly a snip. Uh, what is it nowadays for the tasting menu with wine? It varies. It's about three, let's call it 325. With wine? With wine, it's about No, no, wine is, alcohol is separate. That's I mean, that sounds, food and the experience. Sounds you know, like so a bargain you, compared to this place. Though, well, isn't it? yeah, I mean it is. I mean I think it is considering what you'll get food-wise and experience-wise. Of course, I would say that, but I do think you know that. But you know, wine is is scalable. So I imagine it's it's. I mean, I, do you get wine pairing for your two thousand dollars there? I mean, let's get geeky. I mean, what do you get for your money? Oh, that's you get a very the, good question. You see, so they don't. Do you get don't... a drink curated by the sommelier team, or or is there wine list on top of that? 
Oh, that. Oh, well, okay. He doesn't say about the wine, but Chef Paco Roncero, when he's asked about it, he says, we don't see ourselves as a restaurant. I'm not going to do the Spanish accent. Mm. He says, when I mention the lofty world's most expensive restaurant, he basically says, we play with emotions, the senses, the set, the aromas, and the taste to be able to create absolutely unique experiences with each sense. With each yeah. scene, sorry. With each scene, I'm adding It's not it a restaurant. Way. I mean, his point is it's not a restaurant, i.e., yes, it looks like one. It has tables and chairs and people bring you food and you eat them, probably with a knife and fork. In that sense, but it's not a restaurant. It's it's uh, a story, you know, we're, uh, I mean, a storytelling device. It's a theatre, perhaps. It's a, it's just, it's not a restaurant. Although I'd love it to have looks, a go, wouldn't you? Of course, yeah, I'd love fun. to see it. I'd love to go, yeah. Because that anyway, feels like, because some of, the, some of that... We'll do a podcast over there, Paco. Yeah, come on, Paco, get us over there. In fact, if any of our listeners have been there, do tell us what it's like. Mm. Um, I don't think any of our listeners are quite I'd love to know there. if anyone's a real f- a fan of this kind of experience. You know, people probably have been once if they've been and then gone, that was interesting. But is there anyone that really got it, really got something that was fundamentally different, you know, to their eating experience? Or was it just a, a, a like a ticket ride? You know, you went on, you did it, you go, that was cool. You know, or or did it? Because you know, when you read the, the the you know the words and thought concept behind all this, it's it's meant to fundamentally change who we are, right? They talk lofty philosophy about our emotions and nostalgia and multisensory techniques to do this and unlock experiences. I mean, does that happen? Because I'd love to know. Because if it does, I mean, that'd be brilliant, and I would love to go. But I would love to also know that it can work. I'd like that, you know, because you that's know what? we've got we... lots of chefs out there listening to this, and do get in touch at Journey to the Centre of Food on Instagram or Journey to the Centre of Food at gmail.com. But the one thing I noticed was over those years of making all those crazy shows where we'd we'd put all sorts of fantastical efforts into making Heston's food work for these celebrities in in, in on the TV, and the one that had the biggest impact that made everybody have a really genuinely emotional moment was when we gave them old school dinners. That was the uh, one that actually took them. Well, when you were place. talking earlier about was it Harry or George's having fancy pants school dinners, I suddenly yeah. thought, in my head I suddenly thought, you know what? Oh, I could, I, yeah. Sometimes I really crave as a like a meaty pie, an unidentified meaty gravy pie with just a really certain <laughs> sort of sort of I had a water crust pastry, and it was a pastry I loved. And I just suddenly thought, God, I could eat that with, with a, a half a half a ball of, of uh, whipped up mashed potato on the oh, side. Oh, one of the spotted dicks that they used to do in my. Oh yeah, and then obviously oh. then the pudding. You know, for me it would be um, pink custard. Yeah, pink maybe custard. maybe I'd, I'd often go for the chocolate sponge with pink custard. Mix it up. Rather than have the chocolate custard with the chocolate sponge, whatever it was was so heavy. I mean, it, it oh, was Manchester like a physical sponge and Manchester tart. What's that? I've never heard of that. Well, it was it was like a jam. I think it might be sponge at the base, so it could have been pastry. I think it was pastry actually with a little layer of usually strawberry jam, uh, and then a topping of of kind of a crumbly thing, but with coconut in. So it was like a Ooh. coconut strawberry jam pastry tart and we used to have it all the time as like a school dinner rotation thing I mean I never saw it again and then one time on on Saturday Kitchen Marcus Waring rocked up and suggested he made some Manchester tart and I thought God this is amazing good for you for you know because I've I, I heard he of Manchester it. tart and before. it wasn't oh I'm, sh- I'm going to google it now I'm sure he I, I, do you know what I didn't know I suspect it was called Manchester tart till Marcus Waring told me it was called Manchester tart but it was the jam <laughs> coconut um yeah, Manchester is a traditional English baked tart consisting of a short crust pastry shell spread with raspberry jam. We, I think we used to have strawberry at school because kids probably didn't like raspberry jam. Covered with custard. We probably had, probably did have some custard and topped with flakes of coconut and a maraschino cherry. I don't think we went to the lengths of putting a cherry on top um, at my school. But uh, um, it was just a fun, God, I loved it. I loved it. And we never had it 
again, there were so many puddings I used to have as a kid that I haven't seen ever. Flan, since. flan. That's flan. something I have. Flan, a flan, which was the strangest thing. You used to get the they used to come pre-bought in those gold circular things. It was just a a flan, a flan. What? Well, what? Well, well, savory flan. Uh, no, well, it was a sweet flat. Well, I don't think it was either, really. I think it was just a flan, and then you pour what you like into the central reservation of it. So it was generally like sort of tinned fruit, which was considered mm. quite lardy. Oh, I see. So it was quite sweet. It was a sweet thing. Yeah, so you, you, the flan came in. The, I'm sure they still do them. It's well, like I think a we, gold yeah. circular sort of piece of cardboard with sort yeah. of cellophane over the top of it. And the flan was dark brown, and it was pre-everythinged. Pre, pre, pre you just cut the cellophane off. I mean, you're talking like, you know, 80s dinner parties here. My pa- I remember watching my parents do it. They put the, mm. the flan down. Crack open a couple of those, you know, nice sort of preserved fruit ones with those. They always had like cherries in them, and those I don't even know what they were. They were like sort of see-through cherries. I never knew what fruit they were supposed yeah, to so be. Yeah, so a little round thing. I don't yeah. know what they were. I think I've asked this before to friends. What were those fruit? Whether they'd be a bit lychee, but that seems really no, unusual. It be lychee, or grape, it? maybe. Could we grape? Um, but there was always like sometimes it was it was really the peach slices I was after. Um, oh, and yeah. really, just all that syrupy, fruity stuff at the bottom. You just pour um, that into the middle of a sort of squidgy thing, and there you go, pudding. So we used nice. to have a we used to have savoury flan. Did and you? I, and you know, I, I was just wondering, is flan just a, another word for quiche? But I think there is a difference. As someone what, was it, what goes into a savoury flan? Cheese, egg, just an egg custard with cheese and bacon. It's like a quiche. Well, that sounds very different to the. I suppose it would be lovely, actually. That would, yeah, mm. I was I was trying to. Oh yeah, I mean you know it can be. I mean it's. I think flan is. I mean, it's just a quiche, isn't it? I mean, it's just a pastry case with stuff. It could be could be sweet. Could have sweet custard, but it yeah, would. Well, have... I think there's a delineation between dessert flans and normal flans. Well, it is, yeah. What is it normally? Would, Why is it know... coming up with creme caramel? That's not a flan. I think in French it's called flan. Oh, is flan and flan different? Well, I just think it's a French word, isn't it? Flan. flan. Sorry, dear listeners. Honestly, I mean, some of the chefs listening to this are going to be yeah. screaming at I the I think it's uh, just a word for, for, you know, in, in other languages. It's, uh, it's yeah, but in England, we'd call flan like a like a quiche. Oh, oh, here we go. The history of flan. <laughs> it's uh, a long history. Flan is easily the most popular Latin dessert and has been for many generations. Yeah, so uh, we must be talking about caramel-based. But they're baked. talking about caramel things, aren't they? Yeah. Uh, that's, that must be flan, then. Uh, we shall delve into this we'll ask someone with significantly more knowledge than us we need Mark Meltonville we need Mark Meltonville we'll get Mark Meltonville back did we invent quiche that's what I want to know is quiche British (laughs) did we not well Mark can normally spin most things to being British I think we did I'm going to put that out there quiche is British we'll have that well we did invent champagne didn't we and um, custard you know creme anglaise you know <laughs> this is and nice. Was, this brings us back to as we finish the podcast. This brings us back to our our royalist kind of start of it, which is yes. I think on, on for for this you know celebration, we should just be banging on the table. And go yes, everything was invented by Britain and the Queen. Um, Have they published the, uh, the, the, the the jubilee celebration menu? Oh, don't know actually. Yeah. What do you mean? Is this the thing they're going to have for the well, garden at party? some point? There's got to be a um, a sit down, right? Well, there's going to be you know, many sit-downs. Exactly. Do you mean for the um, Queen? Yeah, like, a, like what's what's going to be on that? Um, but she'll be having at some point a, a an official jubilee. Oh, I see. What she's going right? to be having for that day for mm. her I mean, we'll all be outside having cheese sandwiches or whatever in the rain. Um, yeah. Waving little flags. But she will somewhere, I'm sure, or some part of her entourage, if she's not well enough these days to, to go in person, will be sat at a very long table. And we know what they're going to have because we know she's going to have dark chocolate. Will's going to be na- having a Nando's. The curry. <laughs> 
that's easy. It'd just be a fleet of delivery. And then there'll just be one giant <laughs> trifle that they have to, and it'll be the most thing that's left at the well, end. Like, is that an amaretto? What, 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 who made this? Well, oh, cool. that's very nice. Very, oh, very well lovely, done, well done Julie. Swiss roll in it. <laughs> And on that, we still managed to come back to losing the knighthood at the end. On that, uh, we will uh, throw our tiaras away and uh, finish here. But that was that was lots of fun, James. I, uh, good luck with the garden parties. Hope you have Thank fun. You. Uh, yeah. eat, eat many flans and flans. Um, mm. And I will speak to you next week. Bye bye. <laughs> <laughs>